Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Soon Yu, co-author of Iconic Advantage. Don't chase the new, innovate the old. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Soon Yu to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book he has co-authored with David Burr's Iconic Advantage, Don't Chase the New, Innovate the Old. Soon Yu is an international speaker and best-selling author on innovation and design who's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Entrepreneur. You most recently served as Global VP of Innovation at VF Corporation, which is the parent organization to over 30 global apparel companies, including the North Face, Vans, Timberland, Nautica, and Wrangler. Prior to that, he worked at the Clorox company and Chiquita Brands, and he was also founder and CEO for numerous venture-backed startups. And, interesting fact, he earned his undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. Soon, congratulations on Iconic Advantage, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. Uh that your introduction made it sound like uh, being an electrical engineer doesn't quite fit with the marketing path, but somehow they actually work together. <laughs> well, they do. And as a matter of fact, you are not the first electrical engineer that I've interviewed on the Marketing Book Podcast. And I keep hearing about more and more engineers who are making their way into marketing, which I, I like to think says something about the changing nature of marketing. But I should add that uh, you have an MBA from Stanford University. And there's a sort of a this running joke on the Marketing Book Podcast that I've had more authors with Stanford degrees than any other school. It's getting to be somewhere in the 15 to 20 range. And all I can wonder is, you know, when you when you apply there, do they, you know, make you check a box that say, yes, I promise to write uh, a marketing or a sales book if I graduate from here? <laughs> no, they they actually give us your email address and just make sure that we uh, uh, sign our life away. And part of that is actually agreeing to be on your show. So. Yes, well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> and you that. must have some licensing agreement with them. So that's how it probably works. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So um, you, you talk at the beginning of the book about how many of today's business leaders suffer from shiny object syndrome, chasing trends in a market they can't keep up with. But the idea is, what if their most valuable asset you know, was right under their nose? And on, and on page 14, you talk about how 
this book doesn't just explain what iconic advantage is. It explains how you can use it to transform your organization. But before we get into a discussion of iconic advantage, you also write in the book that traditional marketing is not the brand building solution it once was. Why do you say that? Well, I think uh, it used to be marketing was fairly linear where, you know, there was certain funnels that you would follow, certain gates of uh, in terms of purchase decision and, you know, you build awareness and consideration and all that, right? Mm -hmm. I think a couple things have happened. One, uh, the whole digital age has come and how we get information and how we interact with brands has dramatically changed how consumers um, interact with brands, how they behave and their expectations of their level of uh, conversation with brands and, quite frankly, their influence on the brand itself. And on top of that, there's all these new ways to interact with your consumers and with people where things, you know, aren't following a traditional linear path anymore. They oftentimes get short-circuited. And quite frankly, 1% of your population could have amend a tremendous and undue influence into, on your entire brand. And, and so instead of necessarily speaking to the 100%, you got to make sure you speak to that 1% very carefully and very well and very uh, much in a more intimate uh, way. So I, I think given the changes in the world and changes in consumer behavior and changes in technology, how we think about brands is less in our control and oftentimes actually more in our audience's control. And so we just have to be aware of that. And, and there, there are certain things that as brand marketers and as brand managers that we still have some control over. And one of them is um, some of the assets that uh, consumers have grown up to love and to cherish. And it's our job to make sure uh, that they stay in love with those things. Because let's face it, most consumers who fall in love with the brand, kind of like they're falling in love with the lover, they don't want to fall out of love with that brand. They actually want to have um, season after season, year after year, more reasons to actually stay in love. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what the book is about. How do you actually keep people in love with what they already love? Yeah. You know, the other thing that makes me wonder, based on what you said and, and what you have in the book about brands is that you know, the era of command and control uh, is, is sort of over in terms of what you can say about your brand and, and how much of the share of voice you have. Now the consumers have a much larger piece of that uh, pie of the share of voice. So that's, that's just an, uh, another um, issue that the, the, these companies have thinking that they, can, they control their brands. I hear people arguing, you know, you don't really control your brand uh, anymore like you used to. Yeah, that's right. I think... I think going back to that lover analogy, it's a relationship. You actually really have relationships with your audience now. And like all the relationships, you can influence it. You can definitely work hard at it. Uh, you can listen better. You can communicate better. But it's a two-way street. And so um, it's not all, you know, just listen to what I have to say and here's, here's my message and here's the benefit and features and RTBs. And I'm, you know, I know a leverageable consumer inside about you, so I'm going to manipulate the hell out of you. It's not like that anymore. It's a give and take. And part of the job is listening, listening to what they love about you, but also listening to what about you could be improved or changed or made more exciting. Yes, yes. And that's it's so hard for companies to listen and, and understand. And I interviewed uh, uh, the marketoonist a while back, Tom Fishburne, and about the book he had uh, celebrating his first 15 years of those cartoons. And I asked him, what is it that you, what well do you go to to 
always uh, seemed to have these terrific, insightful uh, cartoons about marketers. And he said that the number one thing that he's able to use is making fun of marketers who think they still have a captive audience. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the common thread of being able to make fun of marketers who still assume they have it. So let's go on. Tell us what is Iconic Advantage and why should an organization pursue an Iconic Advantage strategy? Great question. Obviously central to this whole uh, podcast. You know, let me just back up and just say one thing, why I kind of wrote the book, and then you'll understand what Iconic Advantage is about. I've spent the last 20 plus years working on design, marketing, innovation, and trying to commercial a lot of great ideas. And quite frankly, I struggled a lot. I had a lot of failures. And I just witnessed all these other companies that were actually really successful at commercializing new ideas, marketing campaigns, um, you know, and building great distribution. And I was always curious, why? And when I looked at what they were doing versus what I was doing, what I was doing was literally trying to bring in all these new, great, crazy, fun ideas and trying to you know, innovate the business. And yes, I, I, I fully admit I had that shiny new idea syndrome. And, and that was the philosophy and the mindset that I had going into everything I did. And when I looked at these companies, they totally took a different approach. Instead of chasing the new, they were innovating the old. They're innovating their strengths. They're innovating where they had market momentum, where they had consumers who loved them, where they had channels already built up with customers who were willing to take them, and where they had manufacturing, logistics, and all the capabilities already in place to basically leverage further. And their whole focus was on taking the assets that they already own and either keeping them iconic because they were already iconic or pushing them over the edge so that they could become iconic. And that is what Iconic Advantage is all about. It's using your ability to um, uh, create iconic franchises and more importantly, sustain and, and, and grow them um, as a way to be more successful than your competitors in the marketplace. So who are some of the better known ones that have this iconic advantage and maybe some others that uh, maybe smaller companies? Sure. Okay. So let's talk about obviously the big guns, you know, Apple's of the world. Obviously, they have iconic franchises, the iPhones, the Macs. These are uh, franchises that have been around for quite a while. Another great company that has amazing franchises and they're one of their what they call it the three series BMW, right? That's been on a car and driver's top 10 list for, I don't know, a decade now or maybe over a decade now. Um, another great example is Nike. Uh, they're such masters at actually creating things that people lust for and things that actually stick around for 30 years. When you think about the Air Max sneaker, it's been around forever. But there are other organizations you may not think are iconic, such as the Girl Scouts. When I ask you about the Girl Scouts, what do you think is their most iconic signature element? Hello, cookies. Cookies, right. It's totally the Girl Scout cookies. And it's more than just the actual product. It's actually part of their iconic signature elements is the experience, both from the young girls being able to sell their cookies, but also from us buying their cookies, right? Mm -hmm. And so what they did recently is they understood that was part of their iconicity and they wanted to build on that and keep it fresh. But they also had another challenge because, you know, their mission statement is actually to empower young women to be the best that they can be. And one of the challenges they felt 
um, was sort of there and that they weren't addressing fully was there weren't enough uh, young women entering STEM, you know, the science, technology, engineering, math fields. And so they wanted to figure out how could they use their iconic heritage and their signature elements that are iconic and actually uh, address this gap. And so what they did is they recently created something called the digital cookie. And what the digital cookie is, it actually allows young girls to create their own online e-commerce websites to sell cookies and they can personalize it with their own pictures they can change actually how the cart looks and how the user interface and how the entire uh, information flow works and through the process they learn how to build websites and they learn about commerce and they learn about the digital economy and it's fantastic way of leveraging your iconic advantage mm -hmm. okay so lots of uh, examples from big brands um, are there some smaller companies that maybe a lot of the listeners haven't heard of where maybe they felt like they were stuck and then suddenly they realized what they had under their nose uh, that they could use to get iconic advantage? Yes. Um, yes, iconic advantage obviously works with big companies, but it actually works with services and, uh, and with much smaller companies. I think you need to first start off by defining what does iconicity mean. It doesn't mean when people think, oh, you're iconic, oh, that means you're globally iconic like Coke, where you know every country, uh, every, every region, everyone knows who you are. No, that is not necessarily a definition of um, being iconic. Iconic is really being the standard bearer for the niche segment or the small universe that you want to become iconic for, for that audience. And so a good example is um, there's this pizza parlor, and their goal was to become iconic in San Francisco's Petrero Hill District. And they wanted to figure out what is it that they could be doing that would help them stand out versus other pizza parlors. And they created sourdough pizza. And to this day, they're one of the most iconic pizza franchises in San Francisco. You would have never heard of them in Boston. But in San Francisco, they focused on being iconic in Portrero Hill. And because they became iconic in Portrayal Hill, and their, their name is Goat Hill Pizza, that haloed to the entire San Francisco region. And now they're famous for their sourdough pizza. Mm -hmm. And this episode of the Marketing Book Podcast brought to you by Goat Hill Pizza in San Francisco. So <laughs> You and I got to get free pies after this, yeah, okay? <laughs> well, uh, I'll have to get out there. But um, let's talk about, you know, what there's some fundamental steps that most of the book is about in terms of creating something iconic. And again, for the listener, this is, uh, the book's got a lot of how-to, how to go through the steps here. And as a matter of fact, I'm in the agency business. There's a couple things we're stealing from uh, one section to use in workshops. So just so you know, what are those steps and how did you figure out how to get just three? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Figuring out the get the three, that was definitely the challenge. Uh, I, we researched over 50 companies that were doing some form of building iconic advantage. And obviously, you have to look at all the information and kind of figure out what the patterns are. But after looking at all these companies, there were three things that came out that were very clear about three qualities that actually made iconic franchises iconic. And, and that understanding what makes something iconic is sort of the first step in terms of then uh, trying to figure out what are the best practices and uh, principles that people can actually pursue in order to create that iconic advantage. So those three principles are very simple. Iconic brands, businesses, services generally have three things that they share in common. The first is this. There is something distinctive about 
that iconic franchise, something that's memorable, unique, uh, that really stands out versus the competition that they are known for. I call it their signature. Now, the second quality that they have is whatever this distinction is, it's highly relevant to the audience that they want to be iconic for. And the key here is it's not just relevant today. It's actually timelessly relevant, meaning that it was relevant in the past, it's relevant today, but it's going to be relevant in the future. And that's what you call staying power? That's staying power, exactly. So that's the second quality is this idea of being relevant. And the third is, again, whatever universe you want to be, it could be uh, Portrero Hill in San Francisco, or it could be like a Coca-Cola, the whole globe. For whatever universe that is, you want to be recognized. So that's it, recognition. Recognize for that distinctive relevance. And with enough time, because if you're timelessly relevant, you get this idea of being uh, having longevity, then you become the standard bearer for that distinctive relevance, and that leads for you to become iconic. Mm-hmm. And, and then what happens if you know that these are the three qualities that you need to supercharge, so distinction, relevance, and recognition, what can you do about it? And that's what you were talking about. There's three powers I talk about in the book. One is creating greater noticing power, so people – you know, so you stand up and people take notice of you. The second thing we call it staying power. It's not just being relevant, but it's being timelessly relevant and sticking around. And the third is scaling power, where once you've got great noticing power and great uh, staying power, then you want to scale it and create as much recognition as possible with as much of your audience as possible. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to noticing power. What? Let's... let's uh unpack that, as the kids say. Let's talk a little bit more about noticing power. What is it, and, and what is it often confused with? What is, what is it not? Sure. I, I think um, a lot of people think noticing power is just awareness. How well, how well known are you? Mm-hmm. you know, and, and so whether it be unaided or aided awareness, it's, uh, that's what most people think it is. And that's different. That, noticing power is different than that. What this is is about what distinctive quality are you known for? A simple test for this would be if I said, look, uh, for your business, that's the artillery, right? Um, if, if, if I asked three of your clients or your customers, what's your signature? What are you known for? Mm-hmm. Would they say the same thing first? That's the first test. If they all say three different things and they're totally widely different from each other, that's an issue, right? So, but let's, yeah. say they say, let's okay. say they say the same three things. Okay, great. Okay. The next question I would say is, what they said about you, could another competitor in your category say the exact same thing? Mm. Well, then it's not very strong noticing power. Mm-hmm. It's more important that they say something that's not a platitude, that's very distinct. And obviously, the second point is it's highly relevant to them. It's something meaningful that they care about. So that's when you know you have great noticing powers, when you leave And when you leave the room, you leave a great fragrance. Your signature is something that everyone remembers. It's distinctive, and at the same time, it's highly relevant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I wonder if the relevance is the hardest part for some companies, but I I don't know. You know, it it keeps going back to talk to your customers and understand your customers, which seems to be just one of the greatest challenges for businesses out there. But those that truly understand them really have such a – it's almost an unfair advantage (laughs) So staying power, you talked about that. I'm wondering how have some companies uh, kind of run off the rails as it relates to staying power? Were they like more of a flash in the pan and, and stopped being relevant? 
Yeah, we talk about one of those in the very first uh, chapter, which is American Apparel. They came out and initially created great noticing power by, you know, being uh, an American-made L.A. manufactured T-shirt that everyone really liked. They focused on high-quality uh, materials and really ethical manufacturing, and that was how they began, and that's how they uh, created their notice power. But then they quickly got into um, uh, the the need to create a lot of awareness, and so they started adding really racy and sexy ads, and they started to be known almost like uh, the Playboy. Of, um, of apparel in terms of, you know, the type of advertisement they were pursuing and the way they were building their recognition. And they didn't go back to, you know, what their roots were, what they created, what their signatures were. And they got caught up in that. And eventually uh, they scaled quickly, but again, it scaled in a way that didn't create a lot of staying power, didn't create a lot of relevance. Uh, they were different for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. and uh, they went bankrupt. And, uh, you know, they've been purchased out of bankruptcy, and we'll see, you know, where the new company takes them. But that's a company that kind of lost its way. Yeah, and you said uh, American Apparel ended up being a fad rather than an iconic brand. And um, just so you know, uh, soon, you uh, some pictures of these very racy ads in the book, and not that this matters, but I went to a city council meeting recently because there's a zoning violation on my street, and I was there to support my neighbor who was speaking. And before, we had to get there an hour early, so I started reading. That's when I started reading the book. And he was like, what the, what is that book you're reading? What what, what are you reading, Playboy? And of course, I wasn't. But anyway, so I'm just saying, when you get the book and you're reading it on the airplane, um, be careful when you're on page two. So, <laughs> Just, just for the other, for That's the other a fair readers. warning. Yeah. And by the way, you got the galley version, which actually has more of the racy ads. Um, in the, in the actual book version, I took out a couple of them because even I looked at it and said, "Well, I think these are a little too racy for me." <laughs> <Okay>. So <laughs> we edited them down a bit. Oh wow! Well, then I'm going to hang on to this, uh, the galley copy. Yeah, maybe I can get an autograph someday. I may mail it to you, have you autograph it, and send it back. Then I'll really, uh, it'll really be worth something. Um, now, the the, uh, the third one, though, is uh, scaling power. And, of course, I hear scaling power, and I immediately think of Silicon Valley. <laughs> they, uh, Sarah Cooper, who wrote the book uh, 100 Ways to Appear Smart in Meetings, and she came on the show for April Fool's Day. And she says uh, one of the, one of the uh, things to, to make yourself look smart in a meeting, especially if you're not really paying attention, is to uh, say whatever they're saying, you interrupt and say, but will it scale? <laughs> So explain explain this the scaling power. Well, next time somebody asks that, you should uh, retort and say, "Well, what scale? What is it that you think you want to scale? What oh. is it that you're asking about to scale?" Because okay. I think here's it goes to the crux of scaling power. Most people think scaling power is just, oh, well, you know, let's just do as much marketing as possible so everyone knows who I am, and that's scaling power because we're creating recognition. Uh-huh. The key here in the book is really about scaling your iconicity, scaling your iconic signature, scaling the noticing power and the staying power, not just the brand itself. Mm-hmm. And so the focus is, uh, I'll give you an example, um, uh, the Mini Cooper. They were very distinctive for a couple reasons. When you go back and you pull apart what their signature elements, one of them was the signature sort of uh, style in terms of how they looked. You know, the the face is very childlike. Um, the way it's designed is almost like there's a stacked hamburger uh, aesthetic to uh, the, the the design of the actual car, and obviously 
uh, the different colors and all that. But also they had a very signature point of view, which is toy-like, uh, fun, um, you know, helping you sort of kind of relive, relive your youth. Um, and so they created iconic brand language that captured all those elements. Mm-hmm. And when they thought about scaling power, because scaling power can happen one of three ways. One is you can scale by creating you know, awareness and you do that through marketing. The other is obviously making the product as available as possible. And, and the more people have it, the more recognition you're going to create. And the third way is by taking your iconic brand language and then um, extending it into new products and categories so that people can participate with your brand in different uh, activities or, or, or more in their lifestyle versus just in one occasion. Mm-hmm. So when you think about those three areas, what is different about what we talk about iconic scaling? Well, iconic scaling, if you were thinking about it from a product extension point of view, it is really taking the iconic brand language and then translating it into products and services and other, uh, uh, you know, uh, I would call uh, ancillary uh, uh, things that attach the brand. So for Mini's case, they took that iconic brand language and they were able to turn it into a convertible, a station wagon. Most recently, they turned it into the Countryman, um, which is a larger version of the Mini. But they also were able to extend the iconic brand language into the lifestyle that their users use the cars for. So they turned it into travel gear, into um, apparel, things that actually would really fit the lifestyle of their drivers. On top of that, they took this idea of the iconic brand language and they infused it into the marketing. If you go back and look at the original launch of the Mini, you would see all these different ads that show the Mini. Uh, there was one where they put it on the street and they put it in a big cardboard box. That, actually, I'm sorry, not a car, yeah, cardboard, but but also with sort of a, a, a ability to see inside of it. So that sort of a plastic, it looked like a toy box. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it looked like a toy box. And then when they did the billboards, uh, they, again, use that playful element of, of being toy-like in, in their billboards. The same thing is true in terms of how they built their sales channel. If you go to the showroom, you actually see minis on actually roller coaster rails. You see minis in little matchboxes that are giant matchboxes, right? Mm-hmm. And that was actually in their sales room. So it's this idea of taking your iconic signature elements and infusing it in the way you scale. Right. So I, I want to talk about one other thing in the book, and that is, um, this is the thing that I want to use specifically right away, where you talk about your iconic brand pyramid. And for, for the listener, if they can envision a, a pyramid, like the food pyramid, and down at the bottom is the, the, the bottom, there's four levels, and the bottom level is purpose and values, and then the, the next one up is personality, and then promise, and then the very top is point of difference. And the way that you explained it was rather brief and really, really clear so that I think even people who are suspicious of branding and brands would understand that. I was wondering if you could walk us up the pyramid and and explain what you mean by purpose and values. Sure. So thank you for visualizing it over the, uh, or verbalizing the visualization of it. it. You did a fantastic job of that. And just so you understand, this idea of the iconic brand pyramid it serves as the foundation for building your iconic advantage. And I'll explain how those two connect. But let's start with the pyramid. On the bottom, it's really an internal focused part of the pyramid. The, the bottom two are really more internally focused. But if you think about the purpose, it's why people get up in the morning to go to work. 
for the company they go for? You know, what is it about beyond making money, okay, or, or being able to feed yourself that actually would get you excited about coming to this brand and to this business? And so what is your purpose that's bigger than making money? And the that's why. what we took on. Yeah, the why. It's really important. And the values are also very much, they should be congruent with this idea of the purpose, but these are things like honesty, integrity, uh, sustainability, um, humility, I, I think about them as very human values. And, and the way values work, they actually guide decision-making when no one else is in the room, mm. right? They yeah. actually help you through ethical dilemmas. That's what you sort of fall on and think about when you need to um, navigate a very difficult uh, ethical dilemma. The values help you through that process. And it brought to mind the idea of a of a, an employee solving a problem for a customer on the spot, like yes, like a, like a Nordstrom's taking the tires back <laughs> for somebody that they never <laughs> yep. sold tires to, but just so, or, or a, uh, an airline or a or a hotel, knowing that they are empowered to solve these problems and they know what, what the values are and the purpose too. If they if they combine those two, then you know I, I think you're right. It actually helps. Uh, uh, it, it helps simplify decision making because they look at that and say, "Is that congruent with what we believe?" And if it's not, then we shouldn't do that. And if it is, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, simply put, it's a set of belief systems that um, are there when no one else needs to tell you. That right. There. Right. So then, the next one is personality. Yes. So personality is very important because. You know, the last thing you want to do is seem schizophrenic to your customers. You don't want to have one day you're really this, this you know, disciplinarian. The next day you're this loosey-goosey person, and that wouldn't work well. And like great novels or great movies, they're really focused on general archetypes. And as we think about when we watch our favorite movies or read our favorite novels, there's always the hero. There's always the rebel or the, the, the villain, you know, there's the um, creative uh, and then there's uh, um, all these. And so there's this great book um, called Hero and the Outlaw. And in this book, there are 12 archetypes that are described. And those are the general archetypes that are used in most Hollywood screenplays. And it's because we as humans identify with those. They're almost shortcuts for us to actually engender trust with that archetype. And so what I recommend for people to think about is what's the one or two archetypes that best describe who they are and then therefore to be as consistent with that as much as much as possible so that people when they when they develop a relationship with you it's consistent and it becomes familiar. And I have to say that um you sent me on a detour <laughs> like no other book because when I was reading this and you started talking about Hero and the Outlaw which I'd never heard of by Margaret Mark I then looked it up. I then went and listened to an interview she did on um, Park Howell's uh, The Business of Story podcast. And I've even reached out to her to invite her on the podcast because it looks, again, like this pyramid. It's, it, 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 you're one of those 12, one or two of those 12 very specific ones. And I just, I, I don't know why I had never heard of this book. So I appreciate you sharing her work and, uh, and, and the idea of using that. So then we go from personality up to promise. Yes. Okay. So again, the first two really about who you, who are you? What do you care about? Right? right. The next one is what are you going to do? 
You know, why are you on this earth? What, and I, I love this. Uh, I love what you're kind of alluding to that this pyramid is actually describing very. Uh, it's a very human pyramid, right? You're mm-hmm. almost describing a person, and you should think about your brand and the fact that you're going to have relationships with your consumers as very much human. And if you think about it that way, then you will listen because as a human, you're supposed to listen, and then you're supposed to develop this relationship. Now, what's specific about a brand is you're on this earth to do something good. For your users, for your audience, for your consumers. What is that? And that's what the promise is. What are you promising? If they develop a relationship with you, what do you promise to do for them? What do you promise to deliver? What's your mission as it relates to making their lives better? And that's what the promise is. Right. And it's not necessarily your product. It's what your product, I would think, could do for them, how it helps make them save time, save money, uh, you know, uh, spend more time doing what they want to do. Bingo. That's all I need to say on that. <laughs> okay. Well, because, you know, so many people, I'm, you know, you could, yeah, Kodak thought they were in the film business when they were in the business of capturing memories. That's and right. So, celebrating memories. Celebrating memories. Yeah. So, yes. or the, you know, the, the marketing myopia where I think Theodore Levitt years ago said, you know, the railroads thought they were in the business of, of railroads when actually they were in the business of getting stuff from point A to point B, and they completely missed out on interstate travel, air cargo, all those kinds of things. That's what the real problem, that's what the real promise was that they were making. Now then, let's go, let's scale the top. We're almost there. The point of difference. So the point of difference is what makes you different, obviously, than your competition, but in a way where people care about what they uh, something that they actually want and something that they would then think of you uniquely when they needed that. And so that's what the point of difference is. And the goal is when you're creating iconic advantage is creating iconic signature elements that help embody and celebrate that point of difference. So going back, let's say to the Nike Air Max, the air bubble is an iconic feature that's highly recognizable. It's got great noticing power, but it's also got great staying power. And part of the reason it has great staying power is because it speaks to the idea of in enhanced performance. If you think about it, most trainers lose about 40% of their support in their life, but a pocket of air would never lose its bounce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on the point of difference, you said that uh, you may have gathered by now that it's your point of difference that creates your noticing power. And that links us back to the uh, noticing power, uh, staying power, and scaling power. That's right. Soon, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think in this world of noise and of, you know, changing consumer behaviors and all this stuff, you know, people being bombarded by all these theories and all, I would just leave you with one question. And I would think about it for the business that you're uh, in charge of, but also think about it uh, as a professional and on a personal level. What's your signature? When you leave the room, what fragrance do you leave? Is that fragrance something that people notice? Is it something that they find unique? And most importantly, is it something that they actually find valuable and care about? Mm-hmm. And you know, the interesting thing about using the word fragrance is it uh, conjures up the subconscious Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So soon, what books have inspired your 
work and career? And so that's always a great question. There's, I'm looking at my desk right now. There's probably like 200 books surrounding my floor. It's really oh, messy. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you belong on this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, it's always hard to find one. But I'll say there is one that is. Well, maybe there were very... some that were sort of like milestones looking back where you read it and maybe you, you made a change because of it. Well, yeah, that's a really interesting. Like the journey of which books have influenced my life. I'll say one that's been very seminal in terms of a professional setting. I read a lot of books and a lot of them were theoretical. They provided a lot of great frameworks, a lot of great ways of thinking about things. But truthfully, a lot of times when I went to go apply anything I had read in a book, I oftentimes fell flat or just ran into challenges. And a lot of it had to do with, in especially in organizations, small or large, it had to do with the fact that I was dealing with people. People that, uh, quite frankly, were busy or that had fears or had aspirations or had different agendas, and they were very emotional and not often very rational. I could lay out a perfect PowerPoint presentation based on a book I read. I could bring in a great author, and they would all agree. But then when it came down to actually implementing or executing any of these great marketing, innovation, or product development programs, I always ran into issues with people. (laughs) <laughs> and so one of the best books I read was a book by a good friend of mine, uh, good friends of mine, uh, Chip and Dan Heath, called Switch. Oh, yes. And it really breaks down this idea of how do you make change happen when change is so hard? And the simple message in that book was change is hard because oftentimes what you're dealing with is people and people of what they care about has to do with emotions. And so if you are going to change something, you have to think just as much on how to get their rational side on board. Actually, don't even have to, you have to just do a little bit on getting their rational side on board and do a lot in terms of getting their emotional side on board, helping address any fears they have, helping them think bigger and more positively and, and, and really speaking to their goals and their aspirations at a deeper level. So this idea of emotion and people, that book taught me so much about the importance of that when it came to doing anything that I learned in any other book. And that, mm. so that was very seminal. You know, it's like the Heath brothers or Dan Pink or some of these people, you just buy whatever they write because <laughs> you know it's going to be a home run or a grand Absolutely. slam. And that Absolutely. is so true. Uh, you know, the people, the more these books I read, especially about the brain and the evolution of the human brain and why change is what, uh, fearing change is what's kept them alive. Uh, mm-hmm. Like some mm-hmm. tiger coming into their, you know, camp. <laughs> uh, there's there's very good reasons why people fear change. And there was another book that was on recently by Daryl Weber, and he talks about how, like, possibly 90% of your brain is operating at the subconscious level. Oh, uh, yes. Autonomically. <laughs> and you don't even realize how you're being, how you're being influenced by these things. So yeah, it's uh, th- that's a very, that's a very fascinating uh, topic and doggone it. It always comes down to those human problems, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It really does. So are there any, um, well, I mean, you're, Sure, you're in the uh, Stanford Alumni Association. So please tell me, are there any recent or upcoming books that uh, you've heard about, or uh, or you recommend, or, or you look forward to reading? Yeah, there's one that released a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had a chance to sort of get to know the author a little bit. Uh, she's an amazing woman. Her name's Patty McCord, and she was the former vice president of HR for Netflix. And her book is called Powerful, and uh, um, the publishers uh, of the book are actually sending me copies, and I'm going to get it this week, and I, I'm looking forward to reading it. But um, 
what she really talks about is this idea of radical transparency and on how to manage your HR in a way that really looks at honesty. And part of that honesty is, guess what? You know, you're not quite cutting it. It probably is best that, uh, you know, you might uh, find employment elsewhere. We'll help you with that. But it's best for the company. It's probably best for you. And, and you know, those are hard conversations to have. And, and, and but uh, I, I think in this new uh, sort of digital economy, I, I think this is going to be important that people have that radical transparency. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And it brings to mind um, Jack Welch, how he famously, I guess while he was chairman of GE, he would um, have the bottom 10% of people based on evaluations, they would be shown the door. And he looked at that as a failure. Like, why did, what are we doing to make these people unsuccessful at our company? And then, you know, he would hear from so many of them that, you know, after they got laid off and everything, they actually ended up finding something that was better for them. So he said his job as chairman was fielding teams. He said he just fielded teams all day long. So that's, that's interesting. And um, I'm sure that'll be very, uh, a very uh, interesting read. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Certainly. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Soon Speaks, and also you can uh, visit us online at uh, iconicadvantage.com. Terrific. The name of the book is Iconic Advantage. Don't chase the new, innovate the old. The authors are Soon Yu and David Burrs. Soon, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. And that closes the book on episode 161 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Hey, do you know what a great conversation starter is? Just ask your friends and colleagues what podcast they listen to. And if you think they might like the Marketing Book Podcast, please mention it. And please join us next time as we welcome Ann Barr Thompson to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, Do Good, Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Both Purpose and Profit. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. The thing that got me kind of excited was uh, particularly the application of that pyramid, because I could think about going into some of these small businesses or manufacturers, not spending a lot of time on it. We're in there, you know, to sort of do a content marketing workshop to deal with your salespeople, to find out what the questions are their customers are asking. But when you've got this uh, sort of North Star and you can apply it with that pyramid and those 12 archetypes, I think that's a, it sort of made me think, I can sneak this in on them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, it's simple. It's it's easy for people to understand. There's, you know, we, we I've been doing I've been doing this for the last year for folks, and there's only four questions that people need to understand. You know, what do you, you know, you know, what do you care about? That's really the first one, right? The second one is who are you? Third one is you know, you know, what do you promise? You know, what what do you want to do for your consumers? And then the last one is what makes you different? That's it. I, it's just <laughs> the four questions. And so if they can answer those four questions, then they have their brand pyramid. They don't have to spend, yes. I don't know, like, I don't know, like four months and, you know, five oh, workshops and a yes. whole bunch of giggly glue. I, I could send you all these brand essences and yes. brand pyramids that I've gotten. They're so bad. Like, I look at them and go, I have no idea what this brand's about, but it's a lot of information.
When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.